You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On this episode, I speak with Andrew Yang. You may know him because he ran for president and mayor of New York City. He's best-selling author of The War on Normal People and now the book Forward, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. He's been the founder of a tech startup, founder of a nonprofit, Venture for America, where I was on the board, founder of Humanity Forward, which among other things gave money directly to people in need. Now he's a founder of a new political party, the Forward Party, which we discuss in some detail. But perhaps most importantly, he's the first repeat guest on Startups for Good. Bit of a joke, but it's great to have him back. We discussed why we need to change the voting system, why we need a third party, and why it will work this time. Charter cities, new transportation modes, opportunities for startups. We geek out on startups. And we talk about our new cryptocurrency we're starting on this podcast, which is mainly a joke, and some advice for people considering starting a company. I think you'll enjoy it, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups So Good, Andrew. We had you on way back in 2015 and had so much fun. I think you're the first return guest, so welcome. Yeah, look at that. I merited <laughs> the return engagement. Yes. I'm so glad to have you back. Back then, you were known for starting Venture for America. Today, you're known as a candidate for U.S. president, a candidate for New York City mayor. You've started for-profit startup yourself. You've started a nonprofit. Now, you are starting a party. Wow. I'm, I'm so impressed to see how you evolve and continue to push things forward. My question for you is, how is starting a startup similar or different than starting a political campaign? There are some similarities and some differences, truly. Uh, so when you start a startup, one of the things you think a lot about is the money. <laughs> uh, that, that's true if you start a political movement as well, where you're going to need a team. You're going to need to have a sense as to how much money uh, they're going to require uh, and then you have vendors and the rest of it. And so that stuff feels very familiar where it's like, okay, I, I think we can get this thing going on. Like, you know, I'll throw a number out just for fun. Like I, I like two or $300,000. But one of the weird things about these political actions is that there are donation limits typically. Now, when I ran for president, there, the major loophole, which is a pretty dumb loophole I'm going to share with everyone, is that the candidate, him or herself, can give a lot of money, which is how you get like the Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's give, give up whatever money you want. And then you ask someone else for money, and there are typically very stringent limits. So for the forward party, uh, the limits we're working with are $5,000 a person. And in this case, there actually is no founder loophole. <laughs> like, I can't say, I can't like, oh, if it gets in a bind, it's like, you know, maybe I'll give some more. Like, so, so you have to plan accordingly. And how do you personally pay bills in the early stages? Like, how does this work? I'm trying to imagine. It's very startup-y where you have some bills. And then in, in the case of this political stuff, so I guess I can say there is like one loophole is that I could front the expenses and then get reimbursed 
as the money comes in so that I'm not above the limit. Like that, that's something that is completely kosher. So you're lending to the new political entity and then getting paid back later. Yes. Though, though that time frame has to be relatively brief. <laughs> you can't just like lend it like gajillions forever or, or else they think that you're kind of breaking the spirit of the thing. But I'm happy to say the Ford party, even since its launch has been raising money from grassroots donors uh, and we're off to the races. So uh, really in, in some ways like that very, very nascent stage is over. And then now we get to operate where we're looking around saying, okay, let's try and get more energy, more attention. And this is something that's very familiar to me from the presidential campaign in particular. In what way? Well, I started the presidential campaign. And the first thing was the angel round where I called friends and said, hey, give me money. <laughs> Mazel's one of those friends. I remember, like, I remember getting that call. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so then it's like, hey, your crazy friend is running for president. And uh, I would like you to donate. I think at the time it was $2,700. And so being good friends, some of my friends were like, sure, I think you're crazy, but here's $2,700 because, you know, entrepreneurship and startups and whatnot. And so that was the angel round. And we, we got maybe, you know, one or 200 people to do that. And then you had like enough to get started. Maybe you had like three or $400,000 to get started. And then that money starts running out. <laughs> So that because at the time we didn't have like a legion of grassroots donors. And so then I, I went around trying to get attention and energy. And the thing that I found worked was podcasts, at least for me, where when I sat for a podcast interview, typically a few of the people that heard me would then follow me on social media, go, go to the website, sometimes even make a donation, uh, join the email list. And so that's one way we grew our following and as you proceeded, some of those people got more and more engaged to a point where eventually we wound up with something like 425,000 donors to the campaign and raised $40 million. So that's obviously a very, very big success story in the scheme of these things. Uh, it's unusual. It was something of a one-time event in politics where an anonymous outside figure who was not in politics uh, raised money at that scale. Um, but th that you know, the, but the formula was pretty straightforward, which was just, I, I would go and talk to podcast hosts and try and get the message out. And then people would start paying attention. Part of what you talk about in your new book is the media landscape forces messages to be so polarizing, divisive, and short that people don't have the ability to absorb new ideas. And so I think that's part of the reason the long form content that you were able to do on podcasts was able to get through to people. Yeah, I love to sit down uh, and you're 100% right that a cable news hit, very, very few people watch a cable news hit and are like, oh, I got to freaking like get on this. Like that's just not the way we're conditioned where if you like when our data showed that too, like you like cable news hits, it's not like you would see a flurry of either web traffic or donations virtually ever. So there, there it's like a different medium with a different impact. And in the new book, you've laid out the long form argument of why the country needs a new party and what it is. But can you give us the shorter version now? Of course, I'd be happy to. I love this group too, because if you're listening to Miles and Startups for Good, then you love startups and you love doing good. So kind of the, the, the perfect audience. My book first tells the story of my running for president. I try and share the ins and outs uh, and some of the mechanics so people have a sense. And then I start digging into why things are not working in the United States of America <laughs> in terms of our government. They're really not. And what I found was that it's actually not designed to work. 
where you have structural incentives that virtually ensure that someone will be reelected regardless of whether or not a policy crosses the finish line. The approval rate of Congress right now is 28% nationwide, probably not surprising to listeners. The reelection rate for individual members of Congress is 92%. So think about that for a second. You're going to keep your job and you're going to keep your job, unfortunately, not if you deliver for your constituents, but if you, in some cases, just avoid compromise. 83% of the individual districts in the country are either very blue or very red. So the game is not to win the general election. The game is to avoid getting primary and fend off any challenges within your party. So the incentive structure is such that legislators want to avoid seeming ideologically impure, uh, particularly on the Republican side, and they want to placate the 10 to 20% most extreme voters in their districts. So in that system, reasonable people actually become more unreasonable because if you are a true warrior for your 10% uh, of the most extreme partisans, then you're going to keep your job. And if you start compromising, then you're likely to lose your job. You can see it on, on issues like immigration when Marco Rubio proposed the, the common sense immigration reform plan and then got stoned from within his party. And then immediately it was like, well, just kidding. <laughs> like, you know, don't, don't pay any attention to the crazy statements of, of Marco Rubio of last week. So, uh, so that's the system as it's currently designed. The duopoly is also very, very subject to authoritarianism because if you have one major party, that gets overrun by bad leadership, then all of the incentives are to fall in line. The founding fathers were trying to avoid parties for this reason. Other mature democracies have many more parties for this reason. The UK has five, Germany has seven, Sweden has eight, Netherlands has 18. So we've built a very, very fragile, corruptible system that also will not deliver results for the American people. Uh, it's a, it's it, it, like, if you looked at it as a startup operator, you'd be like, wow, this stuff's really broken. You're saying there's monopolies, essentially, these two parties, and there's not competitive dynamics in the party system. There's completely no competition. <laughs> if you're listening to this, you probably live someplace where there's a closed party primary, where you have to be a registered Democrat or Republican in order to meaningfully participate. And then if you were to try and come in as a new entrant, it's virtually impossible because that they make it next to impossible. So... You have a genuine duopoly, and then you have 62% of Americans who want an alternative to that duopoly. And so I'm going to suggest that if you were an entrepreneur and you arrived at a market that had those features, you would say, wow, I need to start a third entrant as quickly as possible. And so that's what I'm doing. And the first mission of the forward party is to change the incentives and change the mechanics, where we have to implement open primaries and rank choice voting in states as quickly as we can that would allow for genuine political diversity and dynamism, but it would also make it so that elected representatives are trying to cater to 51% of the, their constituents as opposed to the most extreme 10 to 20%. It would make people more reasonable overnight. And this has already happened in Alaska, which is the first state to make this change. So why hasn't this changed already? If 62% of people want a new party? Again, the duopoly set up the mechanics so it's virtually impossible. And you can kind of see it a little bit with Andrew Yang raising his hand being like, hey, starting a third party. And then that what, what I'm being faced with really is a lot of, you're going to empower the bad guys to win. And, and so that there's like a, a very much a binary dynamic that our system banks on essentially. And it's not good for anyone. It's not good for certainly any kind of 
intellectual diversity or genuine competition for, and, and it's one reason why you see these parties kind of creaking and underperforming is because their only competition is each other. <laughs> I mean, uh, Philip Howard, this lawyer, put it in a way that really stuck with me. He said, the parties are playing, you lose, I lose, you lose, I lose <laughs> over and over again. And really we're all doing the losing. And I shouldn't make light of it because the consequences in this coming cycle could be catastrophic, where you could see political violence and even like a new civil war on a scale that most would find unimaginable. One of the messages I have, Miles, is that everything is on the table in the United States of America right now. And by that, I mean generally bad things, <laughs> like, like whatever bad things you can imagine, like they're, they're, they really need to be considered. But hopefully you can also make that positive too. It's like third parties, okay, everyone wants one. The duopoly is going to try and suppress it and make it impossible. So are there enough of us that can get together to make this happen? And I'm saying yes. I'm saying that now is the time. The 62% is also higher than normal. <laughs> like, like if you did the same poll a little while ago, it was like, you know, 40, 45. Now it's 62. Yeah, uh, that is an amazing stat and not one that I knew before I heard you quote it. I think when people say that creating a third party can create a spoiler effect and end up throwing the election the other way, they are right about the first past the post current system that we have, right? Yeah, uh, it's called plurality voting. Uh, it's the voting system most of us are familiar with. And in that scenario, if you have a third person, then it, they're going to take votes from someone. And so that, that is the spoiler effect you described, Miles. It's one reason why we need to convert to ranked choice voting as quickly as possible, because it gets rid of the spoiler effect. Um, one of the impacts I'm just going to throw out as an example, if the Republican Party was using ranked choice voting in 2016, Trump probably does not win the nomination because he was getting 35, 40% of the vote, but he wasn't on a lot of second choice lines for like other people. It wasn't like Jeb Bush won, Donald Trump too, you know, like that, that wasn't a thing. So it, what it does is it rewards people who are able to reach majority support. And it also gets rid of the spoiler effects. It diminishes the incentives around negative campaigning, because if I trash you, we both look bad. So ranked choice voting, and this should be appealing to startup people, is like, it's it just like a, an upgrade. And so whenever anyone runs around is like, yay, like you're going to mess things up, be like, well, you could just switch to ranked choice voting and problem solved. And so that's, again, mission number one of the forward party. And I, I will say, too, that I, I'm about this movement, but I just want our system to make more sense. Like, 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 I, like I, I don't want three parties. I want five or seven parties. You know what I mean? Like, that's just a much sturdier system, because then if one system succumbs to bad leadership, then it's not an existential threat anymore. Right. I mean, that makes total sense to me. I think part of what you're saying, if I'm understanding it, is that ranked choice voting will moderate the outcomes in elections. And in some ways, parties used to play that role. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when elites ran the party platforms, when they ran the party selection process before it became democratized, they chose candidates that were more, more establishment, for lack of a better word, less likely to cause big swings uh, and, and somewhat of a moderating out, outcome. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's like an effect. There's a, a period, and I read, read this fascinating book, if, if people are into this stuff, um, by Ezra Klein, Why We're Polarized, where 40 years ago, the Democratic and Republican parties were almost identical. <laughs> like, like, they didn't actually represent ideological poles. 
and so when you talk about them being moderating impulses, 100%, it was just like two different sets of elites <laughs> that, that would run things. And so the, the swings were relatively mild. It's only over this last couple of generations that they've, they've become separated in the way they have now. And unfortunately, that has elevated political tension to civil war levels. And now 42% of partisans describe their opponents as evil or their mortal enemies. You know, I mean, it, it, that's one reason why political violence is rising. And unfortunately, the dynamics will uh, continue to elevate it unless we do something to change the incentives and, and make it more multipolar. That's one reason I'm so passionate about the forward party. It's, it's scary stuff, this threat of violence and what we've seen already. I think part of what is fascinating about the approach that you've laid out is that you don't have to leave your current party to affiliate with Ford. Is that right? Yes, especially because in 83% of districts, if you were to change your party registration, you probably lose your uh, your vote because <laughs> you know? we haven't made any of these changes yet. So if you want to help the forward party accomplish its goals, you can stay a registered Democrat or Republican or independent. It doesn't matter. It's only after we amend the system to a point where you don't have the stiff penalty that people should feel free to change their registration. Uh, we're very practical. You know, we're, we're, we're like uh, startup types. Yeah, this seems like this could break through the logjam. If you ask people to step into a third party that's clearly not going to have any power and maybe they're going to lose your vote, like, why would I want to do that? But if I can say I'm a Ford Republican, I'm a Ford Democrat, then you can start building your list, your momentum, and people who are really standing up saying it's time to change the voting system. This is just to make our country more sane and functional, really, you know, and, and, and it has been interesting, Miles, because in theory, a lot of Democrats are for this. <laughs> but then when, when the rubber hits the road, like some, it, some of the Democrats are among the most resistant because at the end of the day, organizations like party control, you know what I mean? Right. And so it threatens the existing power structures. Yes. So it's one reason why you have to do it. Uh, outside of the two major parties. But yeah, you can join as a Democrat, join as a Republican, let's get it done. Cool, well that's the party. I'd love to jump into some other stuff. Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle, and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation. Let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are U.S. tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You know, in the past, you have talked about other policies like uh, digital social credits. Did that ever go anywhere? Has anyone done that? I just had a conversation yesterday with some folks in the cryptocurrency community, and they were suggesting that some of the, the DAO efforts are the equivalent of a social currency because you, you get these tokens and then the things you do within the DAO enable you to get rewarded in various ways. There are other environments that are actually doing pilots around this. I was just in San Francisco, your hometown. And uh, there are communities that are giving transportation tokens to poor uh, residents that they can use to get around. They can use it for you know, a bus. They can use it for a scooter. The, the company that's actually doing it was a micromobility company that Ford had bought. 
So Ford is trying to find ways to get people to be able to pay for you know, different modes of transportation, whether it's e-scooters or the bus. So, so there are a lot of efforts in this direction, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say. Neat. Well, I look forward to hearing more about them. We should make our own currency on this freaking pod, Miles. Okay. Mi- Miles bucks. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what would you use them for? Uh, to go miles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Fair enough. Before we started the podcast, I was making puns about the word forward. So I got I to gotta say it's fair to open up the puns about my name. So Miles Bucks it is. All right, all you blockchain, distributed ledger, crypto folks out there, please, let's spin it up. Yes, Miles Bucks, the new stable coin, but only, <laughs> only to be used for travel. Exactly. It's for going places. Always forward, never left or right. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can only go straight ahead. You're not allowed to turn. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Speaking of transportation, that reminds me, I've been wondering... You know, you started a party, you started a nonprofit, started a, a company. What about starting a city? What do you think about charter cities? Do we need more of them? Oh, yeah, we definitely need more. <laughs> more. Uh, the, one of the reasons why instinctively it was like, oh, yeah, we need more is that when I was at this micro-mobility event in San Francisco, they were talking about how existing infrastructure is very poorly designed for a lot of the, the, the new modes they're coming up with. And some of the modes they're coming up with are so interesting. There's a, a skinny car that I rode in that what they want to do is they want to split lanes so that in a conventional lane, you'd have two cars side by side instead of one. And it would apparently get rid of traffic jams for everyone. And in California, apparently this is totally legal. Uh, there was like a Silicon Valley, you know, like uh, it, it was kind of a parody, but it was real um, where the person had a skinny car and just started driving between <laughs> the, the, the cars. For e-scooters, one of the things I learned here in New York is that Scooters would benefit from having dedicated infrastructure because like going on the street with them uh, has issues around really the safety of the person on the scooter. Uh, Then if you go on bike paths, like the speed is different and uh, it doesn't mesh as well as you'd hope. So if you were to start a city from scratch, you could do some incredibly interesting things around livability and transportation that are difficult to overlay on an existing community, truly. And uh, I, I think if someone were to do something that they would be able to, to, to show really what's possible in a way that might not be feasible in some of the existing cities that, that we live in. That's a cool idea. So a charter city allows you to redesign the transportation infrastructure. Yes, totally. It totally would. And it would be magical. Like you would genuinely feel like you were visiting the future. If I was in a skinny car sharing uh, lanes or going in between lanes, I don't know if I trust myself to drive. I think I might want an AI driver. Uh, that was one of the things that uh, I felt a little bit in these cars. There's another one too that, that it is a different design called the Arkamoto, which is uh, another skinny vehicle. They're fun. It would take some getting used to. Certainly, I'm with you, Miles, that if I started to drive between cars on on our current highways, I'd get a little bit nervous. But it, you could see the potential for sure. And they were incredible feats of engineering. Uh, so one of the big deals, apparently, with the skinny car I was in is keeping it from toppling over <laughs> because the wheels are not closer together. So apparently they have the equivalent of like a 2,000 pound weight at the bottom of the car that makes it like impossible to topple. 
where the the person I was driving with was like, try and topple it over, try and topple it over. And I was like, you are absolutely insane. I'm not going to try and topple over this vehicle while we're driving. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound safe. It also doesn't sound environmental to put a bunch of extra weight in there. I was going to assume that they were going closer to the ground, which means you really don't want to be mixing with SUVs or maybe you're going to tell me next they're driving not between cars, but also underneath them. They were, it did feel a little bit closer to the ground. Uh, I understood why they did what they did. Um, It it was a fascinating piece of engineering. Um, And they kind of had some retro elements in it too, so that it, you know, it, it didn't feel, it felt like a combination of like kind of the past and the future. It was, it was fascinating. It was a good experience. Yeah. So this is Startups for Good podcast. I really want to talk also about startups. Where do you see there are business opportunities? What's the role for new companies in these problem areas that you've identified? Like you first came to prominence talking about AI. What What is the role of a, a startup founder to help either mitigate the impacts or help people uh, in this coming automation world? Well, one of the things I said in my book, uh, The War on Normal People, some people might have found controversial. I don't think people listening to this found it controversial. It's like, look, if you're a startup founder, you have a tough job just making your stuff work. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, like I, I, I can't expect you to solve all of the externalities, you know, like you, you were focused on, on market-based problems. Now, are there market-based problems that also deliver social good? Yes. But uh, in my mind, Unfortunately, a lot of the opportunities we're, we're seeing kind of compound existing dynamics that, that I think we're all familiar with. So the, the fact that remote work is now very much with us and here to stay in a lot of communities would mean that there are, are opportunities around trying to help deliver things to people in, in a new way that before when they were commuting downtown, like their life looked a certain way. And now it's going to look a bit different. And so like, what, what do people need? Like, you know, what, what are the, the things that they're, they're going to be missing if they are working at home all the time? Yeah. Maybe some people listening to this can relate to that. <laughs> so, so I, I think that people who are investing in virtual goods and, and services are onto the, what, what's going to be more and more real in the future. I'm going to tell a dumb story, but I think it, you know, to me, it, it says something. I have two kids who are nine and six, Miles knows them. They are kind of lazy. And so when we try and get them to do something, you know, it's like when I was a kid, it's like you had an allowance, do some chores, et cetera, et cetera. They want their allowance in Robux, which is, you know, the currency for Roblox. Like if I gave them US dollars or, or Robux, they would actually try and just change the US dollars into Robux immediately. And so if my kids are any indication of the future, number one, different types of currencies are going to be a thing. But number two, like people will invest real resources into uh, online worlds uh, and community-based interactions that will ultimately end up giving rise to a new economy of, you know, the equivalent of like billions and billions of dollars, uh, eventually like tens or hundreds of billions. So enter the metaverse, do your chores in the metaverse, get your allowance in the metaverse. I know it's not great. I'm like some people listening to this are like, wow, like, you know, that, that, but a lot of people listening to this can relate to that if you have kids, because, you know, they're probably into Roblox too. I have to admit, our kids, they tend to want to trade a lot of their money. And we still, for pedagogical reasons, give them like tangible physical dollars for their allowance, paper, cash. And they often want to change it into credit card spend through our credit cards on Amazon. 
That's, yeah. <laughs> it's still a good work by you, Brad. I mean, you, you, you two are ace parents. Anyone <laughs> listening to this too, you should know that uh, Miles and Liz are excellent parents. Oh, I've, thank I've, you. I've, 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 been, I've been around them and shamed by them. <laughs> <laughs> I would never shame you for that. But, uh, Not deliberately, you wouldn't, <laughs> Miles. Not deliberately. Uh, well, we've been talking about uh, startup opportunities, but I think more broadly, we know we need more startups, right? Oh my gosh, do we need more startups? Yeah, it's true. New businesses are what create jobs, whether it's a small business or VC-backed startup. We need more of them. And what is the role of government or what policy changes can be made or what can we do as, uh, in our local communities to support more entrepreneurship? Wow, man. I mean, you, you and I have worked on this for years and, and you know, you do phenomenal work. I mean, I, I think... Uh, so there's the the personal and then the philanthropic slash corporate, and then there's the public. You know, there, there are different things things we can do. I mean, at a macro level, what I tried to do with Venture of America is just make, uh, make entering the startup world as easy as joining a consulting firm <laughs> or, or a bank. Like, like that, that, that was my thinking was like, right now you have to be a little bit madcap and you know, like like a off the beaten path to head to startups as opposed to a corporate path out of various schools. I think that's still true today. I don't know. One of the the strange things is that tech has become such a massive force in our economy that they're like these, you know, I mean, they, like they're these behemoths that are more appealing than I, I'd say traditional service industries for for a lot of young people. But if you go work for Facebook or, or Google, like, are you going to wind up end up um, working at a startup? Less and less likely, honestly, like I know some of the people who are at these giant companies and they have it really good. <laughs> and the giant companies just like the giant companies, I swear, they have an algorithm for, for retention where like I have friends of these companies where like anytime they start thinking about doing something else, all of a sudden, like, you know, like ping, it's like, Hey, we just like ratcheted up your stock options a little bit and like did something else. And they're like, Oh, <laughs> You're saying they've got some predictive analytics that uh, know that they came into work a little later, or or maybe that's old school, that's pre-pandemic, or they know that you logged on later, or or something like that. Are you, are you suggesting some uh, big brother monitoring here, or just uh, just somehow they seem to know? Uh, yeah, I, I they let's just say I think that they're investing significant resources in uh, trying to <laughs> yeah. try to make sure that they're keeping the people happy, keeping them. Um, and, and I will say to folks who are listening to this who resemble this, if there is one potential force for reforming the practices of big tech companies, it is the employees at those companies because the leaders of those companies do not want employee uh, dissatisfaction above a certain level. They, they have this you know, culture of sort of like benign cooperation that if, if you are able to say, look, in order to maintain this culture, like you have to make some changes, like they'll actually consider that about a thousand times more seriously than they will if it's from someone outside their company. Outside the company, they'll be like, whatever, I don't have to care about you. But like inside the company, all of a sudden you do have real influence. So just to, to incept folks who work for big tech companies, like you have a lot more power over the future than just about anyone else. Now for, for startups, which I love, and I've been a part of a lot of them, you know, like uh, on a personal level, it's really just encouraging anyone around you that's trying to do something. And one thing I will say uh, that, that I think this may might be familiar to folks. I started my first company or co-founded it at the age of 24. I had no idea what I was doing. It was going to fail. If someone was around me at that time, 
um, they would probably think there's no way this is going to work. This is going to fail. But some people supported me anyway, and it did fail. But then I did something else after that, something else after that, something else after that. And so that that's one of the things we have to encourage people on. It's like, look, like so, some persons like, uh, you know, raw and trying to make something work. That's maybe a dumb idea, you know, just be like, it's cool. Like, you know, like try and help them along. And then like, they'll, they'll, they'll hook up with something better, come up with something better themselves. But like a lot of this entrepreneurship is just about that individual is like that individual. Like I can never imagine that I'd be starting, uh, you know, this popular movement, the forward party, like X years ago, like everything was kind of built on the last thing. I ran an education company and then that led to my starting venture for America with Miles here. So Miles made a lot of great things happen. And then that led me to conclude that the economy was getting transformed in big ways. So that led me to run for president, which is when most of you heard about me. And and then that that led to Humanity Forward and the the Forward Party. So it's true for everyone on like your personal level too. It's like you have a company that doesn't work. Like my company tanked when I was 24, 25. It hurt at the time. But then, you know, like at the ripe old age of like, you know, 28, 29, I was doing something else. <laughs> So when you ask about how are we going to make more startups happen, Miles, it's really about finding the people, sticking their necks out, and then trying to help and encourage them. Awesome. Well, I hope we can do a little bit of that on this podcast. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is how should government think about providing services in the digital age? Like We've had a lot of guests on who are providing a service that is augmented by government or enrolls people in government service. Like, should government be purchasing from those vendors or should they bring in-house user-centric design expertise or is government more like providing an API and lots of orgs should be the front end? Like, how, how should it work? Wow. Uh, it's a great question. I, I think that the government could certainly use a lot more design thinking, <laughs> but there are people in government that acknowledge that and now are, are employing very high-end vendors uh, to help with the user interface of various programs is probably what you're talking about. You know, I, I had a friend who just joined the U.S. digital service um, who will be doing things in that direction. So uh, I, I think that for the government to hire a service layer makes sense, you know, Expecting the government to be excellent at certain things might be unrealistic. You want it to be excellent at design and usability and everything else. But in the interim, if I think that's a great use of public resources, like if, if the, if, if let's say a city, you know, is trying to onboard people and then it pays a vendor to help make it slick and usable and the rest of it, I think that's a great use of public money relatively speaking. And then if it can develop that capacity itself over time, so much the better, but we shouldn't necessarily expect it to. Awesome. And if you want to give advice to someone, you were just talking about the 24-year-old you, what would you say about, you know, you want to do good. Do you choose government, nonprofit, startup? How do you make that decision? If you're listening to this, I would probably push you to startup. <laughs> <laughs> if you're already listening here, then you should be doing a startup. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair you know enough. what I mean? I mean, they're, they're like, and so I, I wrote about this in, in my first book a bit like different organizations have different speeds, different operating models, different growth rates. And so like, I'm going to tell a story and this is going to be a little harsh, but whatever, bear with me. If you're an idealistic 24 year old and you join a nonprofit, 
nine times out of 10, after two years, you're going to be like, wow, like I did a lot of stuff, but I was underpaid and under supported. And the, the thing was, you know, that, that's what happens in most nonprofits because the, the nonprofit is generally not going to be some kind of massive growth org. When I started Venture for America, thanks to people like Miles, like we did grow significantly uh, and we were something of a success story, but I'll remember this. And th this is something, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it, whatever. It was like our fourth or fifth year, we were having a big party in New York City. And a venture capitalist came up to me and said, Andrew, you have done incredible work. If this were a for-profit company, it would be the equivalent of a unicorn. <laughs> you know, like just suggesting it's like the fact that I managed to grow a nonprofit to whatever it was like, which was, by the way, like not even that enormous. It was like in the, you know, like sort of like, like, maybe $5 million range or something like that. If you want to be part of like a growth org, it's much more likely to be a startup. Uh, now, it's, it's hard to say that because like I want amazing people to work in nonprofits. I want amazing people to work in government. But if you have different capacities and you're looking to grow and develop, a startup is often a better bet Like if you're a certain type of person. Awesome. I think that's an inspiring place to wrap up. Why don't you tell people where they can find out more about the Ford Party and your book, et cetera? Oh, thank you. Uh, so I wrote a new book called Forward, uh, Notes on the Future of Our Democracy. It sounds hella boring, but it's actually good. <laughs> so about, about like, you know, running for president and other things and, uh, and the Forward Party, which is at forwardparty.com. I also do have a podcast uh, also called Forward. I'm trying to make things easy for people. So uh, please do come join us. Let's build the future together. Let's fix this democracy and make it so that the operating system functions correctly and then we can go back to whatever else we were doing. But it, it is to me the gravest challenge uh, that we're facing right now because it keeps us from making progress on any of the other things that we want to make progress on, whether it's climate change, uh, anti-poverty, you name it. So would love your help on the Forward Party, forwardparty.com. Yep. And I have become a donor and I'm excited to be involved. So thank you very much for sharing the message and doing this difficult work. Thank you, Miles. Miles Bucks. We're going right, to go far. No turning allowed. <laughs> take care. Bye, Miles. Bye-bye. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you are inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website, 